Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Robcast. This is episode 195, and it's called A Brief Guide to the Undernet, Part 2. Because <laughs> you, you didn't think I'd just do Part 1. Are you with me on this? We have more. Actually, what happened a couple episodes ago with Part 1 is there were some stories that I had thought about telling in Part 1, and I was like, nah, that's not going to work. And then the more I thought about it, the more I was like, you know what, I have a whole, I have so much more on this. And so when I began to work on it, I realized actually part one was like an introduction. And then this takes us way, part two, we're going way farther. And by the way, let me just say in advance, we found out that there are termites in the back house, all over the back house. So uh, a technician was out today and they did a bunch of things on the back house. And then when... Um, when a man in coveralls says to you, you probably should not go in that building for the next 24 hours because of the chemicals that were used, um, you're like, well, all right then. So if you hear, well, you probably hear police helicopters. If you hear dogs, sirens, cars, traffic, etc., I'm doing this episode from my backyard. So um, I'm just saying any sound <laughs> things, any interruptions, any neighbors making odd sounds, um, the Robcast is outdoors at this moment, so I'll just say that up front. I think I just heard uh, a trash can in the distance. So, so that's that's the the audio disclaimer <laughs> for this episode. But actually, for me, the measure of a day is how much of it you spend outside. So uh, maybe from now on, we'll just do them outside because just everything's better outside. I measure a day by how much time I had to spend indoors. Otherwise. Seriously, outdoors is where it's at. Um, oh, a couple things before we get into A Brief Guide to the Internet, Part 2. My next Largo show is June 4. Largo is a club here in Los Angeles, and tickets are at largo-la.com. I have a new thing I've cooked up and uh, some special surprise guests. And then uh, UK tour and Ireland tour is coming up. England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. And uh, that's the Holy Shift Tour rolls on. And uh, you can get all those tickets at um, look for Rob Bell Holy Shift Tour on the Greenbelt site. So greenbelt.org.uk. Now, my friends, let's do part two of a brief guide to the undernet. Now, first off, let's go backwards and just do a bit of review on part one. Uh, in part one, I just explored really, really basic observations that any new technology and expands and extends an already present human capacity. So a microphone extends a voice, a car extends the ability for a human to travel across the face of the earth, but then that always brings with it the chance that it'll double back in on itself. It'll collapse in on itself. So a microphone turned up too loud starts to feedback, it starts to squeak, and then actually the voice is louder than a microphone that's not working. Or you think about you're stuck in traffic, you get too many cars, which are meant to get people farther in less amount of time, too many cars back up, you have traffic and you're sitting there in traffic and you get passed by somebody walking. So you have this interesting thing with any sort of new technology is you're watching to see um, what's the upside of this and then what's the underbelly of it, which is where we get the word undernet. Um, and then sometimes people will talk about a technology just say, is it good or is it bad? Um, but one of the things obviously you picked up in part one is it's, it's important to move past simply, is this 
technology good or bad and and move towards are we using it in health or unhealth because it's just a technology the question is how will human beings use it uh, i love that ancient story of the tower of babel um, and a lot of people have heard the story of the tower of babel from the book of genesis as some people build a really big tower and god was angry with them and came down and gave them lots of different languages so that they would babble but it's interesting, the chapter before it, in Genesis chapter 10, we're told about a mighty warrior named Nimrod, which is still my favorite Green Day album. And we're told that Nimrod is a mighty warrior and that he's essentially building an empire. And it lists all the different cities that he's building to expand his empire as his empire expands east. Then the Tower of Babel story, which is Genesis chapter 11, says that people began to bake bricks and began to build with bricks, not stones. Now, wait, 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 wait. Have you ever tried to build, and they, then they decide to build a tower. Have you ever tried to build something with stones? They're not the same size. They're not uniform in mass and volume. You stack them on top of each other, they fall, they fall all over the place, and then somebody begins baking bricks. And you know why the brick is so huge? Is a brick can be made in the same size as all the other bricks. You can make a uniform mold for a brick and then you can stack them, rectangles, squares, you can stack them and you can build something much, much, much taller, bigger and faster and more impressive with bricks than you can with stones. The brick is the microchip of the ancient world. So that Tower of Babel story is a very, very, very old story about somebody saying, we have a violent, powerful warrior who is conquering everything in his path. And these people now have a new technology. And the question, of course, is what are they going to do with it? Right. This is the this ancient question. And I would argue that in Genesis 10 and 11, that's what the storyteller is saying to you is, hey, we got an empire. We got a violent, we got a conqueror here. We have a military machine here. We have a man named Nimrod and he's doing something very, he's taking over and now he has a new technology and will this technology be used this way or will it be used that way? It's an ancient question. It'd be like if there was a social networking site that had been selling people's personal data for profit. Are you with me on this? Are you with me on this? Yes, same questions. What will you do with this new technology? Which leads me to... Uh, truth number one for this episode. There is a paradox at the heart of the undernet, and it is this. We've been here before, and we haven't been here before. So when you're dealing with a technology, a new technology, you're beginning to realize that this new technology, this new machine, this new technology may actually be shaping you in some significant ways. And, uh... I always, everything, all my work is about how everything is spiritual. And the undernet, the internet, is shaping us in significant ways. Um, and so our task is to, is to be aware and to be sharp in our noticing and our critique and our observation of what this is doing to us. And so at the, underneath all this is, we've been here before. Human beings have been wrestling with the capabilities and the potentials of new technologies for a long, long time. And whatever that new technology is, 
we haven't been here before. So we have struggled with, oh my word, there's a terrible downside and a beautiful upside to this. We've had that before, these impulses, these struggles. We've had this before, and yet each new technology brings new things as well. So number one, there's always a paradox. We've been here before, and man, we haven't been here before. Now, I want to tell you two stories, teach you a word, give you a line from the Bible, and then make an observation about aesthetics. Okay, so here we go. Uh, first story. Last summer, <laughs> I seriously was wondering last episode, should I tell the story? And I was like, I don't know. Okay, I'm going to tell it. Last summer, we noticed all sorts of heightened activity on our street. I mean, it got like more cars, more people walking around. And then we started noticing that cars were stopping in, one of, in front of one particular house. And then we noticed people hanging out in front of that house. And then we noticed trampolines had been placed on the roof of the house. And then we noticed, uh, then we heard that they had set fire to the pool in the backyard. And then we began to notice parents in minivans with license plates from Texas and Florida and Nevada pull up on the street. And then kids would get out of the minivan and run down the sidewalk and hang out in front of this one particular house. And then we noticed security guards were starting to stand out front. And on any given day, there might be 50 people, kids, out in front of this house. And then we learned that there were a group of YouTube personalities. <laughs> Notice I didn't say talents. <laughs> there were a whole group of YouTube personalities who were renting this house and making uh, their daily clips from this house. And you see them out with a camera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, like, it went nuts. And news trucks started showing up. And one particular news report about uh, the people living in the house just caught fire and went everywhere. And the New York Times did a story about it. And then uh, there were, especially one of the particular personalities, there was questions, is this the worst person in America? Became a headline about this house. And then you want to talk about crowds. I mean, on a regular basis, you know, you'd have 100 people out in front of the house. Their stories were like... Security guards would tell us stories that like moms would come up to the security guard, hand the security guard an envelope with $10,000 in cash and say, you have to let my daughter in the house. She has to get in that house. Like just completely crazy. Now all over Hollywood are these vans that they um, essentially take the sides and roof off of and then tourists ride around in these vans and they point out all of the Hollywood landmarks. So those vans have been going through our neighborhood for years. But one day I walk out, I walk through our gate and right there, a van has pulled up in front of our house and all of these young women on the van jump out and race down the sidewalk to this house. And I say to the driver, seriously? Cause it's like just parking, right? I was like, seriously? And he's like, man, he's like, I've been doing this for a while, but Every single group I lead, when I say, "Where do you, what do you most want to see? They say that house, and he points to the house. I mean, it is madness. I, at one point, saw parents get lawn chairs out of their car and take the lawn chairs and set them up in the front yard of the 
house across the street from the YouTube house and then sit down in them. They literally put them in somebody's front yard and then sat down in them just to like watch the proceedings. <laughs> it was so completely insane. We would be sitting there at dinner as a family in our house with the door closed, windows closed, and we could hear the cheering and we'd be like, oh, one of them's leaving the house or one of them's coming home. <laughs> it's complete madness. Now, the reason why I tell you that is at some point, obviously, we went on YouTube to watch the videos. And I say that to tell you that there is absolutely no correlation between number of views and quality of content. Some of these clips, some of the videos they were making were getting 10 million views a day. One of the clips they made got 60 million views in the first couple of days. It also was rated one of the most hated videos ever on YouTube. <laughs> there is no correlation whatsoever between number of views and quality of content. And a lot of the uh, stunts and pranks they would do, they would buy mass quantities of something. Like at one point, you know, like 30 giant teddy bears. And then the next day, a dumpster would be in the driveway and all the teddy bears would be in the dumpster or basketball hoops or they would buy massive supplies of something, put it in a video, and then the next day there was usually a dumpster pretty much 24-7 in the driveway because of the mass consumption. It's like just the insatiable need to make something, get a bunch of views, and then tomorrow make it again. And whatever you need to buy for it, just buy it and then toss it in the trash bin. One day, my daughter and I were walking by the house, and there's obviously a huge crowd out front. And a mom looks at me, looks at my daughter, and says, One day this will be you. <laughs> no, ma'am, it won't. No, no, it won't. I literally at one point... Uh, saw a woman I know pull up in her minivan, get out, her kids run up to the front gate of that house to gawk with the hundred other kids. And she uh, she sees me and she makes eye contact. And you could see she was just mortified, like, oh, busted. Every, she's like, seriously, I'm so, I'm so embarrassed. Because, and so many parents would look at us like, I know, we asked our kid, where do you want to go for summer vacation? They said, we want to go see this house. So... We drove from North Dakota, like so many parents, like almost embarrassed. Like, what have I raised? What is happening here? Um, and the reason why I tell you that is if you are intimidated by bigness, so-and-so has so many followers, so-and-so has this many YouTube subscribers, if you're jealous of somebody's reach, if you're seduced by the possibility of gaining a massive following. By the way, the New York Times estimate was that this one individual was making a million, 19-year-old was making a million a month on YouTube. Uh, but what's interesting, as, and as, of course, we've learned, everybody is our teacher, as I began to see it from a different perspective, what is, the, uh, this is a giant lesson just up the street. What is it here to teach me? Um, it's here to teach me that there's no correlation whatsoever between number of views, money being made, number of YouTube subscribers, global reach, and quality, depth, significance, or meaning of content. So uh, do not be intimidated. Do not be jealous. Resist that seduction. Because we had this extraordinary experience of watching something blow up 
right down the street and it was so empty isn't even the word uh vacuous uh soulless and think about think about at some level what the undernet does you are a sensory being so you see hear touch taste smell your experience of the world has all of these dimensions it is a fully orbed sensory experience of the world when you watch something on a screen you are reducing the experience to sight and sound. So essentially what a screen does at some level is it lops off depth. It can only handle a couple of the dimensions, sight and sound, of the fully orbed sensory experience we know uh, as being a human being. So when something is huge and catches fire on the internet, it is a fracture, it is a fraction of the full human experience. It, whatever it is to essentially gain a massive following, it has to be reducible to those two sensory dimensions. So think about like an AA meeting where literally millions and millions of people have worked through issues of addiction and come to a place where they were clean and sober. Think about an AA meeting. It's often in a basement. It's a folding chairs. Sometimes it's bad coffee. And yet it's a place of no pretension. There's no acting. There's no bullshit allowed. You are there in your unvarnished, unpolished state as a raw human being in need of surrender and help. Now, millions of people have had life-transforming experiences. You could never reduce that to a small little screen. It wouldn't work. A massive amount of the depth and breadth of the human experience simply cannot be reduced to a small screen that you carry around in your pocket. So when we talk about success and when you find, and the number of people, which we talked about in part one, that I've interacted with who are doing such great significant work and yet have like a deep-seated inferiority complex because they don't have apparently the, the, the reach or the breadth or the numbers of followers that so-and-so over there does, much of the human experience, and I, I would argue a, a good deal of the most meaningful depth of human experience simply can't be reduced to a small screen that you carry around in your pocket. It is a very, very, very narrow definition of success when something is huge on the internet. Now, let me follow up that story with this story. When uh, I was, uh, what, 40? 2011. Uh, I wrote a book called Love Wins. And right around this time in publishing world, people were starting to talk about making like a book trailer, like a video telling what your new book is about. So the book was going to come out in maybe April, somewhere in January, middle of winter, we made a two-minute trailer, which was basically just me walking down the street saying some of the lines from the first parts of the book. Um, and, and then it was going to be released 
as a way of saying, hey, Rob has a new book coming. It was a Saturday night in probably February when a friend of mine called me and he said, hey, you're trending on Twitter. <laughs> oh, my word. It was such an, a surreal experience. Somebody got a hold of that book trailer, I think before even it was supposed to be officially released. Somebody was so cranked up by the book trailer, they apparently wrote a review of the book trailer, which was inevitably became a, a review of the book that they hadn't read. Somebody else saw the trailer and then tweeted something, and then somebody else wrote a review of the tweet, and somebody did a thing against that review. And apparently in a matter of moments or hours, the book was trending and Rob Bell was trending, including a hashtag, which to this day makes me laugh so hard. One of the top hashtags on Twitter that evening was, who the hell is Rob Bell? <laughs> How awesome is that? <laughs> you know, when people write their memoirs and it's like, you know, walking gently along the path of courage, whatever it is. <laughs> if I did something like that, it'd be like, who the hell's Rob Bell? Now that's a title for a memoir. Um, but what was so interesting about it is I, it's a winter night and I'm sitting in my house having made a book trailer, what, two months earlier. And there's uh, a bit of an uproar about this book that's coming that nobody had read and a trailer about the book. My friend Stratton has this great observation that something going viral, the word viral is related to the word virus. And you generally don't want to get a virus. Are we clear on that? Now, um, the reason why I tell you that story is I remember in that moment being highly cognizant of the fact that I had been trying to do very good work since my early 20s. I had honestly just been like humbly trying to plow my own field. You know what I mean? I had just been trying week after week to give good sermons and write good books and do tours that help people. And somebody else decided that this would go viral. It's almost like the internet chose this. Obvious, and then people saying like, what do you think of the, and then I remember the weeks falling, what do you think of all this controversy? What? <laughs> what? About a book trailer? About a book no one's read? Uh, so, so truth, number, whatever it is, three, about the internet. Often the internet decides what goes viral. And it's a very, very mysterious beast that chooses based on a number of very, very mysterious factors. At some level, I might say it like this, this particular underbelly of the undernet, it is irrational and it is carnivorous. We're seeing that right now with Kanye West. It's like chum is in the water and all those algorithms are not trained for depth, nuance, subtlety, facts, all those internet algorithms are trained for, are people noticing this? It's trained for outrageous, shock, controversy, meltdowns, heated exchanges, loaded words, misunderstandings, beefs between this person and that person. It loves 
to be irrational and carnivorous. The machine is actually designed that way. And I remember this sinking feeling like you can do like a lifetime of work, giving your very best, and then something you never would have seen coming will hit the internet and go viral. It was a, a strange, slightly disorienting, it was like a warning. It was, it was like seeing, well, it was like seeing the underbelly of something. Oh, this thing is tilted in the direction of the irrational and the, and the carnivorous. Like we were talking about in part one, there's never like a line that says like, somebody made peace with their ex-husband today. That doesn't go viral. <laughs> Six people who were very hungry were given free food. Doesn't catch fire. Uh, somebody risked their life to get medical supplies to somebody whose life got saved. Doesn't hit Twitter with a lot of power. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, this happened earlier this year. I was involved in a project, and somebody wrote a review of it. And a friend of mine just recently told me, you know, when you look up that project, the number one Google result is an article that's filled with mistakes and untruths. Like the writer, like this journalist was, not even, journalist is too kind of a word. This writer was such a hack, a friend of mine was telling me, that didn't, got even got the dates wrong. Got like really, really, really basic stuff completely wrong. Didn't even bother to do basic fact checking. And yet, a friend of mine said, when you Google this particular project, the first thing comes up is that article. And you think about the establishment that the, the, the publication that put out that article. I mean, no matter how relevant they would claim to be, that is absolutely unacceptable. And the internet picks it up and spins it and spreads it and that becomes the first result. So when we are dealing with this thing called the undernet, and when somebody casually says, oh, I was on the internet, when we are on the internet, we are on a particular new technological phenomenon that has deep built into the belly of this beast an irrational carnivorous impulse to spread things not based on their goodness, their truth, the facts, or basic human decency, but on what are people noticing. Now, the reason why I tell you all that is because there's a word that has greatly helped me in all this. The ancient Hebrews had a word kavod, K-A-V-O-D, kavod. Feel free right now to Say that to the whoever you're listening with, or if you're driving in a car, you know, just turn to the driver next to you. Kavod, man. Kavod. Now, kavod originally began as a business term. So kavod meant wait. Because when you went into the marketplace, in order to make sure there were fair transactions, there were scales, and you would say, well, this much weight of this, I'll trade you for that much weight of that. So the weighing of things was central to fair and just economics. But then this word kavod began to drift as a business term into a way of talking about deeper spiritual depth of life. 
started to refer to sort of, we might say, significance. And eventually this word kavod came to be translated in English, became to be translated as glory. So the word glory has its roots in this word weight or heaviness. So there's actually a great line uh, from the Psalms. Uh, I'm going to turn an actual book to an actual page. They exchanged, Psalm 106, they exchanged their glorious God, their kavod God, for an image of a bull which eats grass. It's <laughs> a great line. For the image of a bull which eats grass. Essentially saying, these people, they exchanged the depth of life, the grandeur, the glory of the infinite in the ineffable. They exchanged it for a statue of an animal that eats grass. Yeah. Now, the reason why I think this word kavod is so helpful is we live in a culture that is often kavod light. It's sliding down the surface of things. Oftentimes what on the undernet gets pushed to the top is the shallow, the superficial. This person has a beef with this person. This person wore this dress to this thing. This person, uh, this is how they feel about this person's pregnancy. This person, you've seen this a thousand times. We see it all the time. Kavod is about substance. Kavod is about that which endures. Kavod, kavod is about that which is not of this moment, but that which sustains over time. Facebook has no algorithm for kavod. It has no way of sorting, are these comments or these posts or is this news significant, worthy? Should this be pushed to the front? It simply pushes to the front that which people are reacting to, which often is the shallow, the superficial, the uninformed, that which hasn't been fact-checked. Now, I was talking uh, a couple of years ago to a, a leader of a, an organization, and she was very stressed about what people were saying about her organization. And I said, well, wait, 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 wait. Where did you hear these comments? Because the comments she was sharing were like, that the last thing you should be doing is taking those comments seriously. Now, some comments you should, but that's a different way to do that. And she said, oh, well, I was just reading the Facebook comments. Well, no wonder you're a wreck. You were reading Facebook comments as the fundamental primary measure of the authenticity and effectiveness of your organization. That's your problem right there. <laughs> or let's go to the homepage of CNN.com. Here's the problem. The homepage of CNN.com there may be a line about the humanitarian crisis in Yemen, which isn't getting anywhere near the coverage that it should. There may be a line about that, and the headline right below it is about the Kardashians. Uh, the headline right below that is about something utterly meaningless. Now, here's the problem for the soul, is when you look on that site, you are, it all has the same size font, and yet some of it is about great crises and injustices of our day, which demand our attention. And then in the same size font, just below it is another headline, which is just filling your head with nonsense. There is no 
Kavod filter. So no wonder anxiety is an all-time high. We are bombarded with all of this news and all these blips and squeaks and images, but they aren't being properly assigned their level of kavodness. And what this does to the souls, it's incredibly disorienting. Like, think about, you know, thousands of years ago, you had a village elder and you went to the village elder and you said to her, here are the things that have come my way. And then the village elder said, okay, let's talk them through and helped you sort out what matters and what doesn't. Central to living a grounded, centered life is the discernment to know what should I give my attention to and what shouldn't I give my attention to? What should I engage with and what should I blow off? But the problem for many of the ways in which the world comes to us through the undernet is it comes with no kavod filter. It does not come sorted. And it, we're just left to try and figure out what of this matters and what of this doesn't. You think about the page of, uh, we're, we're beating up on CNN, but that's fine. CNN.com, some of its opinion, some of its rant, some of its speculation, some of it is nonsense. And then some of it's incredibly significant and should be given way more thought and reflection, and it all sits there in the same size font. Now, the reason why that is so unbelievably crucial is that what you give your attention to, what is this, truth number four, truth number five? I don't know, I've lost track. What you give your attention to profoundly shapes you at a conscious and unconscious level. What you give your attention to profoundly shapes you at a conscious and unconscious level. And what has happened is you and I are getting bombarded with headlines and tweets and segments and clips and memes, and it's shaping us and it's forming us both at a conscious level and at an unconscious level. And oftentimes, when we wonder why is there a low-grade despair? Why is there so much anxiety in the air? Why do things seem so fragmented? Is because when, the more time we spend in this particular new phenomenon known as the undernet, it is shaping us in all sorts of ways. How many of you uh, on a regular basis get lost in an internet rabbit hole? You went to look up X thing, and then on the right-hand margin, you saw all these other options. You're like, oh, that looks good, and you clicked it. And then when you clicked on that, then all of a sudden there was a whole series of new things on the right. You're like, ooh, after this one, I think I'll go there. And then you went there, and 17 minutes later, how many of you had this experience? 23 minutes later, you're like, oh, aerial views of Mark Wahlberg's new house under construction? Sure, I'd love to see those. Kate Hudson has a new clothing line? How much do the hoodies cost? I think I'll click. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? You're like, how did I get here? <laughs> By the way, there's a fantastic line in the New Testament, uh, which, especially lately, thinking about these issues, has become very, very convicting for me. Uh, the book of Philippians, New Testament. Finally, my brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, 
If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. <laughs> I love it. What you give your attention to profoundly shapes you at a conscious and unconscious level. And the reason why this is so important for us to grasp is that billions of dollars are being spent every month, every week, maybe every day. Billions of dollars are being spent to keep you and I in that undernet rabbit hole, constantly clicking to the next whatever. Billions and billions of dollars are being spent to keep you clicking because there is tremendous economic power and gain based on how many eyeballs something can draw. You and I have never before in human history have we been, human beings, been the target of such a massive, well-funded effort to grab our eyeballs and keep them. And so when you find yourself in this new phenomenon where what we are giving our attention to shapes us and it is coming to us with no kavod filter, this new phenomenon then, truth number whatever, five, this new phenomenon is requiring us to build up a new muscle of focus and intention. Because if we aren't all growing, we aren't building up that muscle of being able to focus and give our attentions to what we're here to do, billions of dollars are being spent to keep us hunched over our phone, clicking the next thing and clicking the next thing and clicking the next thing. And what you spend your time giving your attention to is inevitably shaping you in all sorts of ways. This is new. So when your friend casually says, you know, I was on the internet, or you know, I'm on the internet, maybe we should say, I'm on the internet. Or you could say, well, what am I doing right now? Oh, I'm on the single greatest machine ever created in the history of the universe to suck me into a wormhole while I will be lured click by click by click farther and farther from what I originally log on to to find out or execute or return or mail or whatever it is. And I am now 72 clicks away from where I started wondering <laughs> about things I never set out to wonder about. Now, obviously, how many times have you stumbled upon something absolutely brilliant? But once again, this is not an episode about the good of the internet. This is about the undernet. By the way, Three questions that have helped me tremendously when I find myself, it's 5.17 p.m. It's about time to start making dinner, and yet I clicked on this, and I went from there to ESPN, and from ESPN to The Ringer, and then back to The New York Times, and then I got stuck, right? You know what I'm talking about. It's like your brain is starting to like, it's getting a little soft, it's getting a little squishy <laughs> as the day goes on. Um, question number one to get you out of that, like, it's almost like a numb coma-like. It's like a tryptophan of Wi-Fi. You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like post-Thanksgiving dinner, it's like that feeling when you're on the internet and you realize, I'm just mindlessly roaming YouTube. How did the killers sound at Lollapalooza in 2009? You know what I'm saying? You just found out, you're, okay, question number one to ask yourself, to jolt yourself, why am I here? Why am I here? If you find yourself in that rabbit hole, stop. Why am I here? Oh, I'm here because four videos ago, 
I was looking. Okay, got it. Sometimes just look at why am I here? Second question that's huge. It's been huge for me. Am I done? Am I done? Seriously, ask yourself that. And then when you find yourself in a rabbit hole, and, and what, what it inevitably does is you have to trace back, why did I go online in the first place? Oh, I went online to pay that parking ticket. I went online to return that email. I went online to look up the times of the championship, the Champions League final in two weeks. Like, that's what I, I, I went online to see what time LeBron's playing tonight. Oh, so the why, uh, am, am I done? Yes, I got what I needed. Oh, man, I'm telling you, you try this, am I done? And it like snaps you out of the insanity of getting sucked into that thing. Third thing, which is equally to me convicting, is there something better for me right now? Ask yourself this question if you find yourself wandering down a wormhole on the internet. Is there something better for me right now? It's amazing how often you instantly be like, oh, yeah. It's an inst amazing how instant you're like, yeah, yeah, I can do better than this. I can do better than this. Yep. So, uh, and then uh, what else is incredibly powerful is to turn things off. Like turn off your cell phone. I'm serious. It's so empowering. Or apparently there are new apps now where they will make it so that you can only go on the internet on your phone during certain windows throughout the day that you set up. And a number of people are talking about how that's been like life-changing. I just know anything where I start to think about the internet, I'm going to go on the internet at this little window during the day. Um, incredibly helpful for getting yourself free from this irrational carnivorous beast, which is funded to the tunes of billions of dollars to keep us clicking. Now, uh, one more thing here, my friends. And this one, uh, I haven't heard anybody talk about this. Um, I, well, actually, we had a lovely chiropractor, James Berline, a couple of episodes ago, who talked a bit about this from the perspective of a chiropractor. But um, I, I want to approach, I want to end this episode by talking about posture and the aesthetics of posture. And here's what I mean. Uh Think about our early, early, early ancestors way, way back. We're, we're hunched over, down on all fours, right? And then eventually, after down on all fours for a while, as the great, long, slow march of evolution continued, uh, all fours, then a stronger hind legs, then walking upright. Um, and then at some point, you have a tailbone, but you don't have a tail, correct? So at some point, you lost your tail way back there. Somebody way, way back there, something way back there had a tail, what do you use that tail? To swing from trees? To swat bugs? And then eventually the tail went away. But we kept the tailbone just for the memories. And so if you think about the evolution of our species, it was straighter, straighter, and straighter. Taller, taller, taller. More and more and more upright. To now, like if you're hiking with your friends and you reach the top of the mountain or the hill, what do you do? Your shoulders come back and your arms go up and you say, oh, look at this view. Or if you win, when LeBron hit that buzzer beer the other night, I was up off the couch, hands above my head. Wow, yes. Or when you're welcoming somebody to your home, 
you stand up on that front little stoop and you say, I'm so glad you came over. And you stretch out those arms and your chest sort of comes forward and your shoulders lift. Or when your kid uh, needs comforting, you stretch out those arms and you welcome them in and you hold them up against your chest. Or when you're surfing, when you get to the end of a great wave and you sort of pull out over the shoulder, oftentimes you'll see people just put both hands up in the air because of like, a oh, that felt as you fall over into the water. Oh, that was the best. Yeah. So if you think about the long, slow march, it was up, 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 straighter, 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 more and more upright, more and more arms open, more and more shoulders back, more and more, yes, taking it all in. And then you go into a doctor's office now, and almost everybody in the waiting room is cramped over a little machine, hunched over, shoulders forward, chin down, touching a little piece of glass with their thumbs. Here's the thing. A cell phone, it's not our best look. There you go. That's my, that's my final truth of the undernet. It's not our best look. And honestly, if in, uh, what, 30 years ago, 1988, somebody would have showed you and I a picture of a cell phone and be like, here's what's going to have in it. We'd be like, what? No. Camera? Are you kidding me? Wait, what's the internet? Huh? Wait. It's going to have a level on it. It's going to have every sports score in the universe. It's going to have, wait, you can type on it? We would have been blown away. But then, if somebody would have showed us a picture of a subway, or they would have showed us the picture of a birthday party, or they would have showed us a picture of uh, the lounge waiting to get on an airplane, and everybody was bent over those little machines, with, often with headphones in, Honestly, we would have been like, really? Right? I want my money back. If somebody said, this is the future. This is the future. Everybody isolated, hunched over little tiny machines, tapping away with their thumbs. Honestly, the aesthetics of it, all that forward movement only to go back the other direction, hunched over, shoulders forward, chin down. And that's my... Uh, that's my final truth. I don't think it's our best look. And uh, I think if somebody would have showed us this, we would have been like, I don't know. Seems like that that might be a giant step forward, and there's lots of ways in which it is. This is not an episode about that. This is about a warning. I don't know. I don't know. I, I, don't, I, I don't want people's dominant visual of me to be hunched over looking at a little machine. My family and I went to uh, Avengers Infinity War last weekend because I think apparently everybody in the free world did. And uh, so the theater we were at was the kind of theater where when you first come in the theater, you're basically in the front row and then there are aisles that go back up. So you sort of enter down near the screen and then you walk up along. So when you're sitting there, you're basically watching everybody who's going to watch the movie with you is coming in and you're watching them come in because they're walking right by you and then headed up into their seats. And my family and I are sitting in one of the uh, closer to the front, and we're all lined up. And I swear to you, a minute before the screen went dark for the trailers, a large dude with a beard comes around the corner and <laughs> into the theater. And he looks up 
at an almost packed theater, and he says at the top of his lungs, Are you ready for this? I am so ready for this. I have seen this movie four times. <laughs> I laughed so hard. I love this man. It was such an awesome moment. Are you guys, says to a whole theater of people, are you ready for this? And people like cheered back and all that. And then his girlfriend, who's walking behind him, her wife, whatever, she says to the whole theater, he's serious. He's really this into it. And then you're like, wait, the movie, he said he's seen it four times. The movie been out four days. Has this guy seen a two and a half hour movie four days in a row? Here's why I tell you that story. I'm so glad he wasn't on his cell phone. I'm so glad he didn't have his head down. You know what I mean? It's like strangers in a room with arms stretched out. Are you guys ready for this? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. There's something about our engagement with each other. There's something about the wideness of soul and spirit. This is what you want in life. This is what you want. This is what you want. You want the sensory experience of soaking in all that's coming at you from all these different directions. Yeah. You want that movement in your life. You think about your own growth. You think about your own trajectory, your life. You want wider, taller, straighter. You want to be more and more open to all that's around you. And the problem when you spend too much time sucked in to the internet is it's going the wrong direction. Yeah. There's an old, old uh, Midrash story about the Exodus. These two dudes have been freed from their slavery in Egypt, and the waters have been parted, and they're walking across the floor of the sea, and they're looking down, complaining about the mud on the sea floor and how the mud is getting in between their toes and getting their sandals dirty. And the commentary is, and so they walked along complaining about their muddy feet, while if they had looked up, they would have seen giant walls of water being held back for their liberation. So maybe the modern version of that old story is, so they walked along, heads bent down, shoulders forward, staring at this little glass and metal box in the palm of their hand, missing these waters being held back miraculously for their ongoing liberation. <laughs> That's my version. That's the updated version. Yeah, I think it's like a warning. It's a warning. That's actually obviously part of the spiritual tradition. Part of the spiritual tradition is resistance. Buoyant, joyous, embrace and inclusion. And then at the same time, there's another dimension to the spiritual life, which has always been careful reading of the times and then resistance to that which should be resisted. So we're positive, we're buoyant, we're for it, we're for innovation, we're for the future, and we also reserve the right to say no. That brought with it all sorts of good, but here's a bunch that it brought with it that we're not gonna take. This endless critique rooted in a discernment and a reflection that says some of this, yeah, some of this has taken us exactly where we wanna go, but some of this, mm, no, mm -mm. we're not gonna do that. Yeah, my friends, there you go. Part two, a brief guide 
to the undernet. Grace and peace, my friends.